Hey everyone, John and Andrew here. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. On today's episode, climbing the mountain, leaving room for forgiveness, and loving the best we can. This is Obstacle Course. Here we go. Our listeners probably know this already, John, but today's episode is an emotional one and packed with a lot of big topics that are highly relevant in today's society. Important, obviously, but not something that we're always comfortable talking about. No, talking about sexual assault. We knew that we knew that going in and we were ready to host the conversation, but turns out when you get in the middle of it it's not it's not as easy a thing to talk about and I think that's part of the problem is it is something that we don't like to talk about in our culture and it makes it worse way worse yeah so you're going to hear this soon listeners but um somewhat ironically let's I want to talk about something that isn't related yeah let's Just... not talk about it actually <laughs> <laughs> no we we do talk about it and and we don't shy away and we get really into it but something happened to me yesterday that's completely unrelated that i thought we could just banter yeah. about for a couple minutes here yeah fair enough i was um riding my bike as mm-hmm. i often do yeah and i was on the way to the golf course and i had gotten to the crest of a hill like i was riding a bike up the hill and there was traffic beside me that it would stop because there was a red light at the top of the hill so i was going i was crawling up this hill and almost got into the top and there was a truck that had been that was pretty close to the curb, so I didn't have a lot of room. And I was like, I can squeeze by there. And as I'm crawling by, I my backpack, which I was wearing a different backpack than I'm used to, so I guess it extended a little bit wider than my shoulder. So it clipped the, the mirror on the side of the truck. And I was going at a slow rate. I barely noticed that it, it brushed against it. And if I had have hit it with any force, I probably would have fallen off the side of my bike because... If you're biking and you hit something, yeah, it's, sure. it's hard to stay on your bike. And so I, I go past and I turn the corner and then I pull into the into the golf course, which was just around the corner. And I hear as I go by this angry voice say, and if, uh, if there's younger listeners, um, earmuffs because there's some profanities coming. I hear this angry voice say, if you ever touch my shit again, I'll fucking fuck you up. And I'm like, I think that was directed at me. And <laughs> I was just like, I, was, I wasn't even looking in that direction. I was like slowly getting off my bike. Um, yeah. I, I'm like, did I just get threatened? Yeah. Like to be physically assaulted? Yeah. Because my backpack brushed against somebody's car? Yeah. Like, is that, did that just actually happen? And I felt immediately like badly about it. Uh, I I know that there was zero physical damage to the car no. because it's like if your jacket had of if you had been walking by it, that's the speed I was going at. And right. Yeah. So there was no damage, but I felt like wow. I just a I just really negatively impacted somebody, and I felt badly about that because that's not the kind of impact I want to make on people. No. And B, that person is dealing with a lot of anger. Mm-hmm. And I sure hope that the next time they drive by a cyclist, they don't like veer near them to inflict fear on them. Or I hope they don't go home and then take that anger with them and then have whoever they're in a relationship with suffer the impact of that. But it, it just it was really sad and unnerving that that small of an interaction 
caused such a reaction and that there's so much anger in the world and today's episode gets into our negative actions and consequences and I, I just thought that it was uh, it was irrelevant but it was also a, an impactful experience that I, I would throw throw your way without uh, telling you about it in advance. Well, and I have two questions for you right right off the hop. Number one, did it say Lush Equalons on one of the <laughs> trucks? <laughs> no. Okay, thank God. And second of all, um, do you feel like that there's a bit of a bias, a hate bias towards cyclists? I do. And that yeah. is, I think, one of the factors that was at play is, for whatever reason, motorists and i remember before i started riding my bike all the time which i do now i remember having some of this being like ah cyclists are in my way Mm -hmm. um they're like speed bumps um i hear uh boaters talk about kayakers the same way which worries me because i just bought a kayak (laughs) Um, you're causing so many people so much grief andrew well and that's the thing is (laughs) as a cyclist i'm trying to a be healthy right be uh not create carbon emissions right like i'm trying to do a good thing for myself and the planet for sure and right. sure sometimes motorists have to pause briefly yeah. or even change lanes to get out of the way of a cyclist and th- that the whole driving mentality and trying to get places as quick as possible it's not just cyclists that a lot of drivers have raged towards it's other drivers it's having to stop at crosswalks it uh there's a lot of rage and anger that comes out when we're driving and i and it definitely is part of the whole bike lane conversation and directed at cyclists but i think it's just a mentality of when you're driving when you're behind the wheel you're so independent and focused on yourself that you dehumanize other people on the road and and that's a bad thing for sure but but i also think it's a bit of a power struggle Right, I don't think drivers like to yield, um, sometimes even literally, to you know, a pedestrian or a person on the bike. They see them as, like you said, a speed bump, or hopefully not a speed bump, but as a as a as an annoyance. And so this this power struggle back and forth, and sometimes the cyclist can feel that same kind of animosity and anger towards the drivers, right? And just be like, all drivers are just insensitive pricks who don't understand that that i do have a lane here's a lane people it's this is this is my legal right to be here mm-hmm. and and there's just this animosity back and forth well there's actually signs that you have to put up that say share the road right so like yeah. okay everyone <laughs> yeah so yeah many of you are probably driving right now and yes it, it's <laughs> not hopefully not shutting it off <laughs> yeah it's not just on the all the drivers cyclists have to take their own responsibility to make safe decisions but at the same time a lot of the time cyclists are just trying to protect themselves because the number of times we get cut off or have people drive very close and and blow by us uh it's it's a dangerous game cycling in the city so i think everyone can just treat each other as you would if you're walking by them on the street or if that were your cousin who you're riding by remember there's a there's a person in there and they're just going about their lives like you are and one more note my brilliant girlfriend sarah had the realization when she was late she was going somewhere late and which happens more than (laughs) she'd probably like me to say but (laughs) 
<laughs> she she came to the realization that because she was trying to get somewhere quickly and there was somebody driving the speed limit in front of her, it yeah. wasn't their fault no, that she right, was late. Right. It was her fault that she was yeah. running behind. And they're just going about their day driving the speed limit. And rather than get upset with them, which wasn't their fault, it's just a completely irrational thought process to be mad at somebody because you're late for being in your way. And I think that's something that we can apply to to everyone around us on the road. Totally, but I, I think we can all agree that anyone who drives slow in the fast lane is an asshole, right? <laughs> I got, I got a, a re-agreement on that. Maybe they're just turning left in a couple kilometers. Like the eventual left? <laughs> no, man. If you're going to go slow, and, and sometimes I do that, sometimes I drive really slow, especially when I'm talking. And Angie bugs me about this all the time. She's like, don't let John talk. He's going to drive like a freaking grandpa. And so sometimes I'm I'm a total hypocrite. I'll be the guy, guys, everyone on the on the Malahat. I'll be the one in the left-hand lane, you know, moseying along because I'm talking or thinking or enjoying nature. I know, God forbid. <laughs> if you want to do all those things, those are great things to do. Drive in the right lane. I mean, it's as simple as that. So sometimes the frustration comes from people just not following the rules of the road or not fully knowing the rules of the road. So it's part of part education, but mostly respect and, and stop the power struggle. And this isn't totally unrelated to our episode. Let's I be agree. honest, you know, in the end, I know we weren't trying to connect it, but there's a lot of similar themes that we'll discuss in the episode on obviously on much more grave topics. Hope you enjoy it, everyone. It does touch on power struggle, gender, Sexual assault, we're continuing our theme of going into subjects that people are maybe not as willing to get into themselves, but hopefully we inspire conversation and some insights and help be part of the solution. Yeah, we'll continue to take one for the team by talking about those things that people don't like to talk about. And we hope you enjoy this and it adds to your evolution as a human being. So here she is, D.M. Ditson. She is available for public appearances as well. Her book is wide open, just released within the last month. Well, and actually, if you want to buy her book, buy it from her website, which is dmditson.ca. Because actually, when you buy books from Amazon, the authors really don't make anything. D.M. Ditson, we hope you enjoy everyone. Well, we are here and ready to get going. DM, welcome to the podcast. We're uh, we're thrilled and feel privileged to have you on today. Thank you. I feel the same way. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah. So you're speaking to us from where right now? I'm in Invermere, BC. I'm in my friend's kitchen. Yeah, your friend. <laughs> also uh, a friend of the podcast. Yeah. Uh, Heather McLeod. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you're joining us and, and you just recently put out a book and we'll, we'll get into all that and, and get into your story in, in depth. And we're looking forward to doing that. And before we kind of go to the beginning, we thought we could speak to an analogy that we drew from one of your blog posts recently. Uh, and it involves the story about climbing a mountain. And for me, actually, personally, it, it was really touching because for some reason, since I was a kid, I've had this interest in getting to the top of mountains and looking around and, and the kind of adventure and thrill and, and being up high and, and that that moment has always been special to me. So when I saw that blog post, I I was really wanted to ask you about it and hear the full story. So if you could mm. begin there. 
<laughs> yeah, for sure. So I felt um, I felt two longings for quite some time. One was a longing to be healthy again. I had post-traumatic stress disorder, and I was I was sick, and it took it took an awful lot of effort for me to get better. But I also had this simultaneous longing that I couldn't explain, which was just to be on the top of a mountain. It just felt like something that was necessary for me. And for me, in my journey, those two things happened at exactly the same time. So I spent um, about three years working on my recovery, working really, really hard on it. And then I was feeling good. I was feeling pretty great. And I quit my I quit my government job. I was working downtown in Regina in an office building. And that was the closest that I could come to mountains. And it just became too sad for me to be like climbing stairs <laughs> instead of climbing a mountain. And so I left my job, um, didn't have any kind of plan besides go to, go to BC and find a mountain. And so I ended up in Fernie. And there was, there's a mountain there called Mount Fernie that you can see from everywhere in town. And I was staying basically at the base of it. And I tried climbing it. Um, I tried climbing it multiple times that summer. The first time I went to climb it, a park ranger said, sorry, it's decommissioned, like not recommended. You should, you should go around and come back from the other side. And I just felt like I really wanted to go up this particular way. Like it just seemed too convenient that the place that I was renting was like directly across the street <laughs> from the start. And so, yeah, I just decided, no, like, thanks for, thanks for the advice, but I'm going to, I'm going to try it anyways. And so I tried another time and got partway up and ran into someone who was very fit, who said, like, I don't think you can do it. You should probably turn around right now. And wow. I listened to him and went back down. But it, like a tiny bit of my heart broke <laughs> in turning around then. And so I kept like making these little attempts just with those voices in the back of my head. And the, there was a time, um, I think this is maybe like the third or fourth time I tried climbing it, that that I got probably three quarters of the way up and met this like frantic young man coming down and he was like, turn around. It's too scary. It's too dangerous. <laughs> like you'll probably die. <laughs> and so he was like, he was really afraid and he just tried so hard to convince me not to continue. And I said like, sorry, thank you for the advice, but I'm going to, I'm going to keep going. And so I kept going and it actually wasn't like, it actually wasn't, dangerous and it actually wasn't scary um, but because there wasn't like a specific trail and it was quite steep and so I found myself um, when I was getting closer to the top I found myself having to like grab onto the rocks and so I was I would not call it rock climbing I would call it crawling like so I was basically like crawling up the mountain and it seemed really steep it seemed really far away it seemed like everyone had said like it was something that was impossible to do but I just kept pulling myself up and because of the way that I was kind of crawling is I was just looking like directly in front of me. So when I got to the top, I didn't realize that I was there. Like it was, it was that I had pulled up and then my eyes had just like popped over and all of a sudden there was the other side. And it was just this really thrilling, really exciting moment for me. I started just yelling, <laughs> just mm -hmm. happy yelling into like into the mountaintop. Um, and it was just like it just felt so incredible to be standing on the top of a mountain after having had that longing for such a long time and then having had that parallel longing to be healthy again and to be and to be happy and to be well. And it was just all of a sudden all of these things kind of connected for me. And I felt 
when I was standing on the top of the mountain, I looked in the direction that I had come from and it was, it was summer and it was like kind of crispy grass down below. And on the other side, it was early spring. And it was just so interesting to me to like, just be beholding these two different things at the same time. Mm. And it felt to me really symbolic of where I had come from and where I now was. And so it felt like I'd kind of come to the top of what I, what I had been trying to do with my recovery. And then there I was with this whole like new, this whole new life kind of before me, this whole new spring on the other side. So it's super exciting. Hmm. It's an amazing story. Yeah. Thank you for sharing <laughs> that. And, and yeah, what, what a, what a clear image that I think everyone listening can, can picture of that mm. rebirth and accomplishment and then an open sky all around you to, to gaze on and, and the possibilities that were just at your fingertips and choosing that mindset of, okay, I've gotten to the top. Like it, it's now time to move on. Well, and it really connects, mm-hmm. connects with something you say on your website. Um, you have a section called self care and I, I loved mm-hmm. reading through that. That was, that was so, that was so wonderful to, to see those things that are, that are sort of saving your life every day. And, and mm-hmm. one, of, one of those is just talking about the need to be outside even for five minutes a day, yeah. even when, when you didn't <laughs> feel like being outside, you just force yourself, go outside for even five minutes. And, and what a difference mm-hmm. that, that fresh air and that new perspective makes. Mm, makes a huge difference. Actually, so when I was kind of at the depths of my illness, I had this strategy where if I did something that was good for myself, I would give myself a sticker on my calendar. <laughs> so like if I went outside, like even, even just to like take out the garbage or to walk around the block, then I would get a nice little sticker on my calendar. And same thing if I like ate a vegetable or ate a bite of protein or phoned a friend. Hmm. It's just a nice way of reinforcing That's having awesome. done a good thing. Was it like a gold star sticker? or? Uh, they were actually hearts. Oh, perfect. <laughs> but there were some that were gold. Nice. <laughs> do you still do that? Do you... I had to. Yeah, actually, I do. <laughs> um, I've been doing them lately, um, not so much on self-care things because I'm like I'm really healthy and really and really well now. But I've been doing them for things related to my book. So like here's the particular here's the particular steps that I need to do in order to make in order to make the book launch happen or in order to in order to get the kind of results that I want. And so I've been yeah definitely rewarding myself on the calendar. You know, there's this app I just downloaded just yesterday. It's called Streaks. And, and it's mm. perfect for me because I'm a competitive person and you put any task in there. So like morning meditation, exercise, anything. And you see, you build up streaks. So you can be like, I've meditated mm. 79 days in a row. You know, and for me, that's kind of cool. And it reminded me of what you're talking about, putting those things on the calendar. It's like keeping track of, of the good things you're doing um, and, and mm. keeping that momentum going. I, I love that. Yeah, it's nice to have a reminder mm-hmm. and be like, good job, high five self. Yeah, yeah. I- I have a selfish question. Um, can we get a, a sticker on the calendar for being on the podcast? Yeah. yeah. Ooh, definitely. Definitely. Right. I just bought a new pack. So you guys will get a big sticker. Perfect. It can just be one for the two of us. One heart. That's, uh, that's fine. I prefer the gold star. But we, we, can, we can negotiate. <laughs> we'll take that offline. <laughs> Great. Yeah. So obviously you've come a long way. You reached the top of the mountain. Mm-hmm. Um, you're in a really positive, healthy place right now, which is incredible. And and now you're in a position where you're able to share your story and, and help heal mm. others, which is super powerful. 
Um, but let's, for our listeners, let's let's go back and and um, what do you think would be an appropriate place to start telling your story? That is a good, gentle way of asking the question. Um, I'll I'll just start where where the bad things started happening. So. I was 17. I had been raised very Christian, very fundamentalist, evangelical Christian, um, and my faith all collapsed when I was 17. And so I felt like I had lost my friends, I had lost my family, I had lost everything that mattered to me. I had also lost all of my values because all of my values were tied to my faith. So all of a sudden, at 17, I'm this kid who doesn't really know anything and doesn't really have any kind of identity. And it was very easy at that point um, for me going out into the world to have bad things happen because I had no I had no real support system around me at the time. And there was an instance that I talk about in the book where I met a pimp on a bus and I thought he was a really nice guy. He was telling me that I could live with him, that there would be no rent, that he would get me a job, that everything would be fine. And I just like I just thought, what a great guy, what a nice guy. And I almost moved in with him. The reason I didn't move in with him was um, was because of because of something that happened with a friend of mine. So I convinced her to go on a road trip to see this guy, and um, and she ended up getting kicked out of her parents' place because she had done that. And she wasn't in a position where she could move to to his place, which was in Manitoba. She wasn't in a position where she could move there because she was still in university at the time. And so she said, like, I'm sorry, I can't move there with you, um, but I have to get a place here. And I felt so bad going looking for apartments with her that she couldn't afford that I ended up offering to move in with her. But had that not happened, um, there's a very, very good chance that I would have moved in with that guy and that it probably would have gone badly. So just to clarify he didn't introduce himself as a pimp on the bus i'm i'm fairly certain correct um, he introduced yeah. himself as a nightclub promoter right okay and <laughs> how did you later discover that that was his true occupation so my friend and i went to see him and i didn't pick up on anything when it was directed toward me um i didn't think anything was weird about him offering me a place to live and to get me a job um, but what happened is after my after um, after my friend got kicked out and I moved in with her, the this guy was coming to he was coming to visit. He had called and said, "I want to I want to see you." And I was so we had just moved into this new apartment. I didn't know what our address was, so I was fumbling through some mail trying to find something that gave like a street address so I could tell him how to get there. And as I was doing that, he mentioned to me that. If I wanted to move in with him at some point, he could find a way to look after my friend because he had a friend in Edmonton who liked girls who looked like her and she could stay with him for free. And that's when I started to clue in that something wasn't right because I didn't recognize it when he was coming for me, but when it was for someone else, then it was, it was a lot easier. It was mm -hmm. a lot easier to see, but I found out later, um, my parents had been concerned. So I had told, I had told some of the some of the some of my old coworkers when I had left a job, I told them I met this guy. He seems so great. I think I'm going to move in with him. And they had been worried, so they told our boss, and our boss had called my parents and told them. And my parents had been concerned, but they were always concerned, right? They didn't let me go to the mall because there might be pimps there, and they wanted me to stay home and read a book. And there were a lot of there were a lot of um, 
wolf callings kind of, I would say, when I was growing up that just made me very reluctant to believe when they told me that there was danger. Well, I mean, so, I, I think I remember them saying that, that they didn't want you watching the television show Friends. Yeah. <laughs> because it would corrupt you too much. Yeah, there were too many bad jokes. Yeah. yeah, my dad used to come down and stand beside the couch when I was watching it, and he would make this disapproving noise. Oh, my God. Uh, it'd be like, hmm, 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 <laughs> whenever, <laughs> whenever there would be a joke that he thought was inappropriate, which was basically the entire show. Yeah, so I completely identify with what you're talking about um, in that instance. Um, I want to go back a little bit. Um, you said some pretty profound things quite quickly um, about you know losing your faith, losing your values, losing your community. Um, that, for anyone who's gone through that, um, that is a tra traumatic thing, a traumatic experience. So mm. maybe you could speak a little bit to how that felt when you were going through that, what that looked like practically, um, some of the emotional um, baggage that, that came as a result of that. So it was really, it was really lonely. It was really sad and it was quite hard. So my youth group, had been had been this kind of environment that I loved. It was like it was my main social outlet. It was where all my friends were. And we went, my youth group went on a missions trip to Seattle where we were practicing converting people outside <laughs> uh, so that when um, when we came home and were with our friends, we would be able to have those conversations more easily since we'd had them with strangers as, as practice. And so anyways, when we were on this mission trip to Seattle, um, I met, I met a boy there and I liked him and I thought that was fine because he was also a Christian and he was also there converting other people along with me. And what I, what my youth pastor told me is that I needed to pick between that boy and God. And so there was, there was a little bit of agony for me to be like, why can't I have both? Like, he seems like he's a good Christian boy. Why can't, like, why can't I have both of these things? And Anyways, I ultimately ended up picking God, but when we got back from that youth retreat, um, my youth pastor decided that he was going to arrange our youth group into tiers. And so he had, he had different, like different levels of, um, different levels of involvement that people could have when they were in the youth group. So the very best kids, like the very, the very good disciples, they were in the top tier. And so they could help with the, sp the spiritual planning. They could help with all of the like really important, really vital stuff for making a youth group grow. And then there were kids that would be in the middle group um, who would just plan the fun things, like the silly welcome to our welcome to our buffet kind of things. Mm -hmm. And then the newest kids wouldn't have any jobs besides like helping put away the chairs and doing like general cleanup. And so I automatically said, I want to be in the in the good kid in the good kid group. Mm -hmm. Like that's clearly where I'm meant to be. And I was told no, my faith wasn't strong enough. And so all of my friends and everyone that I was that I was really close with was put into this top group. And I was in this middle group, which um, really made me feel quite isolated and quite alone. And like over over that following year, those relationships just like fell apart little by little. And so those those um, those youth group students, they went on a different on a different missions trip the following summer and I had felt so separated that I didn't even I didn't even sign up for that one and it wasn't until later so I had felt like quite quite alone and I 
decided that I was going to finish my grade 12 semester or my grade 12 year in one semester. So I squished all my classes in one semester, graduated in December, and then like got one job after another job that things just didn't work out. Like I just was kind of really bad at everything. And after getting let go from these jobs, there was a youth retreat that I decided to go on. And I went on that youth retreat trying to find God, trying to put everything back together, trying to get back this life that I used to have and and this strong connection with, with God and my friends that I was missing. And on this youth retreat, um, I went I went to the chapel and I wanted to go and beg God to take me back. And the chapel door, when I got to it, it was down this like long narrow hallway, everything was dark. And I reached for the door and it was locked. And it was just this really profound moment to me of God doesn't want you. Like he doesn't love you. He will not accept anything that you try to do, even if you try and give yourself to him entirely. And so I like, I had this, crisis kind of against the door like I prayed for it to unlock I begged for it to open I kind of did everything I possibly could to get that door to open and it wouldn't and so I collapsed on the floor the youth pastor came and was talking with me and I told him that God didn't want me and that um, that God had decided that I wasn't good enough and so he did a bit of an object lesson with me where he had me stand on a couch and he said, close your eyes, trust in God, and jump off. And I wanted to do it. I meant to do it. I tried to do it. But my body just wouldn't cooperate, right? There was no, there was no way that I could make myself do it because I didn't, I didn't believe it anymore. And so it was all of a sudden in that, in that instant on the couch that I realized this, this, is not, this is not something that I believe in. This is not something that I find to be true. Wow. So what I notice about your story um because we've actually we've had a similar conversation about faith and loss of faith on a recent episode and other people's experiences are a lot are different in the sense that they get to a point where they're questioning everything questioning values not lining up with their own or or with the spoken values of christianity not matching up with the actions of um certain churches or groups Uh, but for yours it seems like it was almost less of a conscious thing and, and kind of yeah. like your your body didn't feel right. And uh, and then there were external factors that were kind of almost pushing you out of it. It, it seems unique in, in that sense that it was almost like it happened outside of you. Yeah, it was very abrupt. And you're you're right, like it wasn't intellectual, it wasn't part of like a cognitive processing and like, do I accept this or do I not accept this? It was all of a sudden, no, I'm not going to jump off this couch because I don't believe that this God who won't open the door um, is either there or wants me if he is. For me, I felt like I was prepared. Everything was about preparing us for the world that will come after this one. And and that's why it was so important. Like you said, you're in Seattle trying to convert people because the end is coming and you don't want to be separated from God forever. And so I, I felt like that was most of what we thought and talked about. And so when, when I lost my own faith, I felt unprepared for this world. And so what I was wondering, mm. what I was wondering is if, if you felt um, a similar experience, which may, while you're sitting on a bus, you're unprepared to deal with the reality of 
say, a pimp talking to you? I would say that I didn't realize how unprepared I was for the world, right? right? Like I thought I was just lonely and bad at stuff, right? Right. I didn't realize that there, I didn't realize that there was, um, I didn't realize that I was in kind of a broader, like that it, it was, that it was a larger situation yes. than just, right. than just here's me not functioning very well in the world. Right. But yeah, we had a, we had a very similar thing where it was, yeah, get, get ready for, get ready for the end of days, yeah. right? Be, be yeah. ready for the rapture when it happens. Um, and yeah, much, much less focus on how do you be a good person now? And right. what are, what are values now that people who are not Christian can have and still be good people? Right. Because we didn't, we didn't really, we didn't really talk about how, how you could be a good person if you didn't, if you didn't believe these things. But so, um, if we can go back to the, yeah. like to the story of the pimp on the bus. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's how naive I was. And I had no, I had no idea that anything was weird about that situation. Right. Like, because it had been the way that I had been raised was to, um, be kind and trusting. And so that just naturally kind of applied in that situation too. And it was only a few months. Um, it was only a few months after I met that guy on the bus when I would say that bad things actually did start happening to me. So nothing, nothing bad happened between me and the pimp other than that <laughs> I, almost, I almost moved in with him. Um, and I share that, like I shared that mostly to talk about how naive I was at the time. Um, but after, a few months after I met him, um, I endured a series of sexual assaults. They started when I was 18 and continued like besides the, besides the break. Um, when I stopped dating and kind of retreated from the world, it continued from when I was 18 to when I was 25. And so I had realized at one point, every, every woman that I was friends with at the time had one story. And I could not figure out why did I have so many stories? Like, why did I have so many bad things that had happened to me? And at that point, I was just like, I will stop um, being in the world in this way. Like, I will stop living on my own. I will just move home. I'll stop dating. I'll just go to university. I'll focus on going to school and baking cookies and watching friends. <laughs> and so that was that was a few years that I had where I was kind of tucked away. Um, but the things that made me that made me so vulnerable, I would say, were one that I was so naive in the first place, and then two, um, there was a sexual assault early on when I was eighteen that I say broke my brain. So it left me with post-traumatic stress disorder. So what happens when humans are in a situation where you can't fight back and you can't get away and your situation is too terrible, but there's nothing that you can do to escape it, is that the body will just shut down entirely. And that's called fear paralysis. So that happened to me um, when, I was trying to, when I was trying to fight this man off and realized that it was, it was not going to work. Um, my, my body just stopped working. Like I had been pushing him away, particularly with the one arm and that arm just collapsed. And at the same time as that arm collapsed, my brain just kind of shut off and went dark. So I didn't have to fully experience at the time what had happened. Um, which I think is a kind response of the body to make it so that I didn't have to endure something that was too unbearable. Um, but for me, what happened after that is that I kept freezing because I'd had this now, this, this became my um, ingrained kind of response when something was scary and I didn't know how to make it stop, was to just freeze again, which also made me much more vulnerable to future assaults because I couldn't even articulate, even with someone that I was dating, no, please stop, 
Like I do, like I do not want this to continue. So it's quite, it was quite difficult. In terms of the PTSD, what can you describe uh, some more symptoms of that and, and how that affected your, your day-to-day being in that period of your life? So at first I didn't realize that anything was wrong. Again, like I just thought that I was bad at stuff, (laughs) Um, but I developed this weird twitch in my left shoulder. This is a shoulder that kind of collapsed when I wasn't able to, when I wasn't able to fight back. I developed some strange phobias. For instance, if anything would touch my throat or I saw like a a throat-ish murder on TV or any like anything reminded me too much of throats, then I would just, I would panic and I would become kind of hysterical. Um, My mom says at that time that I would be showering in the middle of the night. So I would just be sleepwalking down the hall and, and taking a shower. So there were, there were lots of things that were happening. Um, There were times when I would go out with my friends, I would drink too much and I would get to a point where I wouldn't remember what had happened, but they would tell me afterwards that they had found me like hiding under a table and crying. And then they would try and they would try and get me out. And it would always be a struggle because there would be there would be men trying to help. And then there's me like so afraid underneath of the table, um, not like not accepting that these men that are trying to help me are there for good intentions and are trying to like are trying to get me out. So there were a lot of there were a lot of things that were happening to me subconsciously at the time. But it wasn't until I started really working on my recovery um, that that my symptoms really escalated. And so when I was working on my recovery, um, my therapist kind of explains what happened with PTSD as that um, as that when I had frozen and shut down, it was kind of like clamping a lid tight onto a boiling pot. And so then when I was working on the recovery part, we had to lift the lid of that pot. And so things got messy and complicated. My body was convulsing, sometimes for probably an entire night. There are nights where I don't know if I slept at all. Um, And I would just, like, I would lay down and my legs would just, like, kick and run as if they were moving on their own. And so there was, there were, like, hours and hours and hours of thrashing that, um, that kind of happened as I was releasing that trauma. Um, and that happened, um, that twitching and shaking and convulsions, those happened every single day to me for more than three years as I was going through my recovery. Oh, gosh. Um, I, I was wondering a little bit more about the circumstances surrounding that first assault. Um, did okay. you, was this, was this a, a boyfriend? Had you known this person for long? No, this was someone I really, really did not like. Um, So I was in university. It was my first semester of university. I was 18. Um, And I had become friends with these girls who were, they were called mature students. So they'd been out of university for a while. Um, And they were friends with this older guy. Actually, he he was in his 40s. I was 18. So he was more than twice my age. And he was creepy. Um, I went to... um, I went to see my friends a couple times and he was there and he would just make like these like lewd kind of leering comments. One time I got a haircut and he like, he thought that it was terrible and he said that I looked like shit. And then he said, why are girls always wrecking their looks like that? And then uh, I asked my friends, why are you friends with this guy? Cause I didn't like him at all. I wish that I could hang out with them without him being there. And 
these were again, like my, my faith was gone. My old friendships were gone. So these felt like really, they felt like some of the only friends that I had. So they really mattered to me. And they told me he's part of the group, take it or leave it. And I decided, you know what, like these friendships matter so much to me that who cares if the friend is gross. And so the girls invited me for a sleepover. Um, and it was supposed to be just a girl's night with the three of us. And I got there and they were talking about what bars they wanted to go to. Well, I'm 18, so I was not able to go to any of the bars. So they decided that they were going to, they were going to invite some of their friends over. And when I had arrived at my friend's house, um, my dad had dropped me off and he had said that, uh, I wasn't allowed to call. Usually my parents wanted me to call for a ride anytime, no matter what. But this particular night, for whatever reason, he said I wasn't allowed to call for a ride if I had been drinking or if it was after 1030. And so I had been drinking. And then this guy that I really didn't like showed up after 1030. And I remember looking at the clock and being like, I wish that I could go home. <laughs> like, I wish that I could not be here in the house at the same time as this guy's here. I thought that I was just going to put up with more of him being creepy and gross, mm -hmm. but yeah. So in this horrible time with the series of assaults, which there must've just been horrible pain happening uh, consciously and subconsciously and, and the bodily reactions to it. I understand that part of that pain came through in mindset of blame and and negative self-talk and shame yeah and yeah absolutely I, I thought everything was my fault right like i i thought with that with that with the man who assaulted me um we had a conversation while he was in the process of of trying to hurt me um where i was arguing with him and he was arguing back and he was telling me that I didn't mean it. And he was like trying to refute these things that I was saying and these like protests that I was making. And I was telling him no and stop. And it turned into this argument. And I thought, how terrible if I can't even convince this creepiest of guys that I really don't like at all that I mean, no, right? Like I thought that it somehow was me not having done enough. Right. And then when my, when my arm kind of shut down and collapsed, I thought I like, I gave up. Right. And then when I was in these future situations, so I had like, I had pretty low self-esteem having like having left the church and then having lost all of those values. Um, but then when I was in future situations where I would be shutting down or where bad things would be happening. Um, yeah, I, I took all of the blame on that myself and thought, um, that like that I was just a pretty terrible person who couldn't even, who couldn't even make these things stop that I didn't want to have happen. And so I thought that it was, you know, it just, it just seemed like, like something that I had to deal with and carry. And so there were multiple, multiple assaults. It was when I was, I had just turned 21, I think. Um, and I had been with a guy that I had been seeing for a while who I really liked. And we were in, we were in a situation where I told him that I wasn't going to sleep with him. He was about to be moving. He was about to be moving to go to school. And I had told him like, this is like, basically this is what the line is. 
and we were together and he went past that line and I didn't say anything and I didn't push him away. And I was just like, I remember he was, he was holding me and I had my hands against his chest, like, 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 like as in a caress. And they were stuck that way, even after it turned into what I didn't want. And I could not physically make my wrist move and I could not physically make my voice say anything. And so I just froze there. And for a long, long, long time, I thought that that meant that I had done everything wrong. I thought that I should have, like, that I should have been better and I should have done better. And it would have been great if I could have, but I was not actually capable of that at that point in time, because that was the, that was the PTSD and the fear paralysis kind of kicking in again. So one thing that I learned through through going through all of these things and then going through my recovery is that these things are not these things are not all on me like yes i made some bad choices yes i made some mistakes but there were also a lot of there were also a lot of things that happened to me that shouldn't have happened um and so i've begun i've i began to see myself with a lot of kindness and with a lot of like with a lot of self-compassion a lot of that came through meditation. It came through therapy. Um, but now I don't feel ashamed anymore about what happened because I don't see it as like a, a terrible reflection on my character. I see it now as circumstances, um, yeah, a lot of circumstances, and then people choosing to hurt me when they wanted to. I'm curious, before you got to that recovery process, what kept you from succumbing to all that darkness? That's an interesting question. I'm just thinking for a second. Like, what do you mean? Like what? You, you managed to get yourself into a point where you could begin the healing and, you know, one thing after another, the, the successive assaults um, and you still manage to carry on in your life despite uh, a lot of darkness and, and trauma um, yeah okay so I had um, what I would say is a, a really bad strategy <laughs> that worked for me right then which was to like suppress everything right like I buried everything really deeply inside um, when I would try and write about what happened I would just write like a brief, like a brief summary instead of words. Like I would use like sometimes symbols <laughs> just yeah. to like, just to keep things secret. And then after I had written these things down, I would take them, I would take the pages and I would burn them. And there was a time that I burned the pages and then I buried them in the yard, like buried the ashes. There was another time where I tried flushing, where I tried flushing words down the toilet or where I tried burning things and then flushing them. And so it was, it was a lot of, keeping secrets and a lot of hiding these things and a lot of just trying to ignore that and move on, which I think was, was the reasonable strategy. It was all that I knew how to do at the time. Um, but how, how I kind of, how I kind of realized that I needed to get better is I ended up in a relationship. It was the best relationship that I could have ever imagined. Um, he was really kind. We talked through like a little bit of my trauma stuff. I just told him that bad things, quote unquote, had happened to me. And I told him that I needed him to ask me 
when things were okay, like to ask for consent so that I would have that option, right? And so that he would know if I was frozen, then that meant, okay, please stop. And so he was, he was really great. And we ended up living together. We had this amazing, amazing relationship. And it ended up, it ended up um, collapsing on account of me having PTSD, on account of me not being able to be a reasonable human being in a relationship. And so my illness kind of, so I felt safe enough in that relationship that, um, that I was able to come to a point where, where those things started to, started to come out a little bit, where I would tell him a little bit about my secrets, like a little tiny bit at a time. And it just, yeah, my illness was just at the point where it couldn't it couldn't be contained, and so it kind of exploded out. I became pretty like pretty violent. Um, we would we would wrestle, and we would just be we would be play fighting. But I would forget that he was there. So it happens with trauma, with PTSD, and for me is that I would forget where I was. I would forget that the bad things that happened to me a long time ago were not currently happening to me right now. I would, I would forget that all the time. And so we'd be wrestling. And there was a time when I kicked him in the face and I broke his tooth, right? There were times where I left teeth prints in his arms. Like he would be kind of clawed over. And it's devastating to me that I, that I did that to him. But anyways, the relationship ended. And I remember just kind of falling on the floor like just hysterical. And I had this realization that if I did not get better, if I did not become a person who was mentally healthy, that I was never going to be able to have a relationship like that again, that I was never going to be able to have the kind of life that I wanted. And so I all of a sudden had this very, very strong motivation to do something so that I could have a better life. Um, at that at that particular point, when my partner left, I had been asking him all along to tell me the things that I needed to hear. So I needed him to tell me that I was a good person and that he loved me and that I was okay and that I was safe. And when he left, what happened for me was instantly, all of a sudden, I was doing those things for myself. And so there was a switch of, like this major switch in self-esteem where all of a sudden it was like, I'm so sorry that this hurts so much. I'm sorry that you're so sad. And I was able to have that, that, that kindness towards my own self. Hmm. So eventually you found this, found this good partner. And, and I, I know therapy played a huge role in, in your recovery. You talked openly about mm-hmm. seeing, seeing a therapist 80 plus times. Um, I'm curious before that, um, when you were trying to recover from, as Andrew talked about, the darkness of the situation, and you would write those little notes down and then burn them, uh, where were your friends during this time? Did you did you admit any of this to anyone? Were you sharing with anybody in your life about these assaults, uh, especially those first two girls with that creepy guy you talked mm-hmm. about? Did they know that this had happened? What was their reaction? So... So what I have heard since is that it's really important when someone discloses what's happened to them to be met with a really positive social response, to be met with like, and I believe you or, and I'm so sorry that happened to you. Um, but what happened in my experience was the first person I told said, this is a direct quote. She said, get over it. That's just what happens. That was one of the girls who was there that night. Um, the other girl who was there that night, so my two friends, she, um, she came up to me and said that the man who had assaulted me, she said, he says hi. And I gave her like a little bit of like a glare and she like kind of laughed and said, yeah, he thought you'd be like that and kind of stalked away. 
and I never I never saw her again. Both of those girls dropped out of university after that happened. Um, I actually dropped out of university then too. So yeah, I never saw them again. And then the next time I told someone, it took me like months and months to build up the courage to tell someone else. And I told a friend and she empathized with me. Um, but then she told me about something that had happened to her. And she had been assaulted when she was not even a teenager yet, when she was when she was still quite young. And she meant like she her intentions were great. What she did was great, but I interpreted I interpreted it differently because the way that I took that was how dare I complain about this thing that happened to me that's so much smaller than what happened to you. And I don't think that that's a helpful way of looking at things, right? Like I would, like if someone looks at my story as a, like an, as a measuring stick for how much pain they've experienced, I don't think it works that way. Mm -hmm. I think suffering is suffering. And if it hurts us, then, then it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Um, the specifics of what happened, what matters is the amount of pain that it caused. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But yeah, so I tried, I tried telling a few people in it. Uh, it didn't go very well. And so again, like I just kept all of these kind of secret shames for a long time. So what happened to me was when I was 18 and I'm 36 now, right? Like I'm twice as old as when it happened. And I would say it took me really, it took me 15 years to move forward from these things. And a lot of that was because, um, yeah, it was because I was keeping these secrets and because I didn't have, um, I was going to say because I didn't have safe people to share them with, but that's not actually true. It's that I had, um, I had stopped believing that my people who were safe people for me were, were still there for me because they were like, I have lots of friends now from when I was younger, from when I was, when I was going to this youth group, a lot of those a lot of those people are still my friends. My family is still there. I just didn't know at the time that these that these people would respond to me kindly. And did your parents have any idea what was going on? Um, they they knew that I was like detached from them and separated from them and kind of mad and angry. My mom, um, like I said, I was living at the time of that of that assault that left me with post traumatic stress disorder, and my mom noticed that I was walking down the hall at night and showering in my sleep. So she noticed then, but I think that they were, um, they didn't say anything to me. And I think that they were too overwhelmed maybe by it or too afraid of what it might mean. Um, I think it makes sense for um, loved ones of survivors to also be in denial, <laughs> right? Because it is way nicer to imagine that something terrible that has happened hasn't happened, right? It's, I think it's, <laughs> I think it, I think it's an easy thing to um, to try and skip over, to try and rationalize away. We, we, but, yeah, it took me it took me years before I before I told my mom what had happened. We have this habit system, which we think is self preserving, of trapping our secrets and negative feelings and negative experiences inside mm -hmm. of us, and you've you are an example of how much those will affect us and mm. it took until you had basically gone through this painful but vital recovery process to to be able to be in the positive resourceful place that you're in now so mm. for people listening who might have those secrets or or not similar secrets but but a negative belief or 
experience inside of them, what would you say to them? I would say for people with shame secrets that uh, there's so many, there's so many reasons why things happen to us. There's so many circumstances. There's so many things that like, I, I really believe that we're all doing the best that we can at, at any given moment. And so these secrets that we carry, like, I don't think that they're actually as, that our part in them is actually as dark as we might think. And I would just encourage other people to like not hide their secrets from their own self, because that I think was the most damaging to me is how I was like refusing to let myself even consciously process what had happened to me. Um, but then I think it's really great if people can find someone that is a safe person, someone that they trust that they know is going to respond empathetically and compassionately and then and then share with them. But to do so very gently and very slowly and in a way that feels safe and comfortable and okay. Um, I would not necessarily recommend that everyone read a book saying, here's all of the details of, <laughs> of my shames. Um, but I've, I've been able to do that on account of letting out like letting out a little bit at a time. And I've come to the point where, like I was saying earlier, where I don't feel ashamed of these things, where it's just, here's here's what my history was and here's why it was that way. Um, but yeah, I think, I think it's really important to be gentle in the sharing, as much as the sharing of the things is important so that they're not secret and dark and locked away. It's important to be tender in the releasing of it because it's, it really matters to be met with kindness when you, when you're sharing something that's so that's so personal and so scary. I remember you talking about a policeman who was kind to you and, and became became a, an absolute game changer in your story. Maybe, maybe you could share mm -hmm. share the circumstances surrounding that. Sure, um, but I'll back up a tiny bit before that. Okay. So when I first reported was in 2005, I believe. And at that point, the police officers were not particularly kind to me. They asked me, um, how did I know that I meant no if I didn't scream? And they made it very clear to me that it was a crime to falsely report a sexual assault. So it was very, it was a very upsetting encounter. After I left the police station, those officers closed my case and they marked it as unfounded, which is basically the code for, I don't believe you. Um, and so it was about a decade later that I went back and I, and I met with a new police officer and I told him I want to reopen this case. And he was, he was so kind to me. He was really, he was really sweet. He said to me, um, he said to me, I 100% believe you. And he was completely, he was completely dedicated to doing whatever he could to help me get some closure. He, um, so I cried a lot in his office. Um, he had called me in to look at like at a photo lineup. So it was pictures of a series of men, including a current photo of the man who had assaulted me. And as I was looking through that, I had a lot of my symptoms coming up. Like I was shaking a lot. I was, I was really distraught and he comforted me and he told me about how he had how he had coped with trauma so he'd had some difficult things happen to him in his past and he told me that what he would do is that he would take a cold glass of water and he would drink it and that's all that he would do he would just pay attention to this water and this feeling of of him swallowing the water and the coolness kind of rushing through him and 
he was just like he was so kind. He asked me what I would tell what I would tell the man who hurt me, what I wanted him to do. And so there was no there was no chance of prosecution in my case. Um, all the evidence was gone. One of the girls was dead. Um, and so there was no there was no way that we could proceed from um, from what I had told him. And he said, even though this can't result in a prosecution, he said, I want to do whatever I can to give you closure on this. And he said, I want to go and knock on that guy's door and tell him I know what you did. And that really mattered to me because I had been kind of carrying along this worry that because I hadn't been able to because I hadn't been able to connect him to the police. I didn't know what his last name was. So that was the barrier there. Um, because I hadn't been able to get the police to talk to him, that it would then be really, I thought that it would be like my fault or fall back on me somehow if this man had continued hurting other people. And so it was very important for me to have someone in a position of authority tell him, you weren't allowed to do that. This was not, this was not an acceptable thing to do to another human being. And so this officer, this officer did do that. And I gave him, I gave him a copy of my book, which just came out at the beginning of the month. I gave him a copy of it the day that it came out. I just left it at the police station and he responded and said that he was, that he was so grateful to be like, to have been a part of that journey for me. And it's just, yeah, it's been, it's been really incredible having someone so kind and so giving on my side. I'm wondering if you were sitting in a room with that person who committed the assault. If if you even want to answer this question, you don't have to. But <laughs> if you were to, sure. if you were to say something yourself to that person, what do you think it might be? I don't really think that I have anything to say to him. Like I think that um, I I have moved through my recovery, right? The police officer actually told him something for me. So maybe, actually, maybe this is why. Um, I'm trying to remember what I asked the police officer to say. Um, I, asked, I asked the police officer to tell the man how, how much impact his actions had had on me for all of these years, um, how I had post-traumatic stress disorder, how I had all of these symptoms, how I had all of these like further assaults, and how... Um, I was not capable of functioning in a relationship. And so I wanted, like, I wanted it passed on to him so that he could kind of know the gravity of what he had done. And then I don't, there was some like message of peace at the end. I think I said that I hope that he's, a, I think I said, I hope that he's a better person now, which, which I do. Um, people ask me sometimes about forgiveness. And I think that Forgiveness is a dangerous thing for someone who has experienced trauma, particularly if there's someone like me who experiences the trauma as though it is currently happening. So I tried to I tried to forgive this man. I tried to forgive him um, when I was on a meditation retreat. We were practicing forgiveness and doing a forgiveness exercise. And so I'd gotten to a point where I felt really safe, really comfortable extending forgiveness to myself for all of my all of my shortcomings and extending forgiveness to everyone else except for him for the ways that they for the ways that they had hurt me or might have might have fallen short and then i decided i am going to try and offer this forgiveness to to this man and when i did 
my body had a physical response, like this electric physical response. And I just felt all of this fury because for me at that point, my, my trauma wasn't resolved, right? Like I'm, I'm in remission now, but at that point, um, at that point I was all of a sudden back with him hurting me again. And I think it's super, super dangerous for someone who's been traumatized to try and forgive someone before before they're ready because it's going against what the like kind of what the body needs and right then my body needed to be raging because my body was currently in my like psychologically my body was currently being hurt at that time by him is that does that make sense yeah absolutely i i appreciate that sentiment of forgiveness being a choice like it it, Mm. you're you're the one who had a, a crime a trauma committed upon you you don't Mm. it's your choice whether forgiveness is is something that you're interested in or or ready for yeah Um, and i would say too i would say that i like 99 percent forgive him (laughs) right because i want to leave some space for just in case it ever feels like he's hurting me again i just want to leave some space for um for me to be able to have whatever kind of response and Mm -hmm. to not feel like i'm disappointing myself by being mad again right like emotions are complicated and yes, forgiveness is great, but forgiveness and trauma are very, very complicated when they're attached together. And particularly when we're pressuring someone to do something before they're ready. Sexual assault is such a problem in our culture. And I'm curious to, as to what, why you think that is and what are some ways that we can reduce that reality? <laughs> uh, why is it such a problem? That's, <laughs> that's a huge question. It is, um, yeah. I think that we don't talk about it enough. Like I, when I was, the way that I was raised was, so I went to Sunday school and we had this analogy of a piece of tape. This is a lesson only for the girls. The boys were separate for whatever lesson that they had. Um, but the girls had this lesson uh, about this piece of tape. And we were told, what happens to a piece of tape when you stick it to something? And we were like, oh, it sticks to the thing. And they're like, okay, what if we take it off of this thing and we stick it again to something else? What happens to it? it's less sticky. What happens if you do that a few more times? It's garbage, right? And they were making that analogy as if we were to be, if we were to be having sex with other people, right? Because the idea when you're, when you're raised so in such a fundamentalist Christian background, the idea is you practice abstinence, then you get married and you're with one person forever and that's it. And that that didn't happen for me. I don't think that happens for a lot of people. And then there's a lot of shame, I think, that is attached to that. Um, and I just, I just think that it's so important for us to have conversations about what what are particular boundaries that people have. Like, should should adults be tickling kids if the kid says no, stop? Right? I don't, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it, that it should start with those conversations as early as, okay, you're three and you want to stop being tickled? Fine. <laughs> you're, you're fully in charge of that. Um, but then I, I want to have more conversations culturally about consent and what consent means. Because you can, you can look at a few instances of things that happened to me and you can say that the other person was fine because I didn't say no and I didn't fight back. Well, I was frozen and didn't have the capacity to do so. So sure, the other person isn't maybe like legally liable for that, um, but it would be so much better if there was an opportunity for someone like me um, 
who has trouble, like who has trouble saying no, would be great for someone who's like a people pleaser or just generally for, for anyone to have the option of opting into what they want instead of having to like always be like, no, no, no. Right. Because they say, I think that, that I think I read something about in marketing that if you ask someone, if you ask someone a question seven times, eventually you have worn down all of their defenses to say no. And in a relationship, I'm sure that there's more than seven times <laughs> that, that, um, that someone might be asking for something that their partner might not want. How, um, how I've kind of moved forward with, um, with, my, with my partners when I've been in safe relationships is to tell them, like, I don't always have the capacity to say no. If you can ask me if this is okay, then this makes it much, much easier for me. And then, by the way, there's a whole lot less crying that you have to manage afterwards. <laughs> Hmm. yeah from a, a male perspective hearing your story and, and hearing you talk about the, the friends at the time and how they all had a story as well I just get this wave of of guilt like for for our gender um it it, it is disgusting it um it's sad and I like John, I went into problem solving, like how can we fix this kind mm -hmm. of mode? Yeah. And, and I was thinking mm -hmm. the same sort of question. But I think if we were to speak to all of the male listeners, I think obviously this is not just a, the, the female responsibility to say no. It's, no yeah. it's the male responsibility to not tolerate that sort of action amongst groups of ourselves to yeah. evolve from those all of that ego and locker room talk and and just to make a stand and and not be okay with that sort of behavior it's it's on us and yeah don't put it on the put don't put it on the woman in the relationship to say no like be in, in love and respect her enough to to where perhaps she doesn't have to say no like you you're you're yeah. you're in tune with their what they're comfortable with and and like you said ask i mean it's such a simple thing yeah. is this is this okay the, the, yeah. there's a power dynamic at play that is the the old way of how men and women related that i i like to think that we're moving past and that this culture of assault that seemed to be fairly horribly predominant I like to think that we're moving past that into a place where there there is more equality and a, and a more level a level power system, and mm -hmm. I I think that we're moving in the dire the right direction. But obviously, that assault does still happen, and and we still have a long ways to go. But yeah, as I say, we as men, how we speak about women and how we treat about women how we treat women is what has to change. Mm. Yeah. And I will say too, like there have been, there have been some really, really wonderful men, some really wonderful, um, some really wonderful male friends that I've had in my life. And there were some things that they did that were extraordinarily helpful. I think with the Me Too movement, there's been kind of a, a, a man shaming element to it, which also isn't helpful mm. because there are a mm. lot of, great men out there and uh mm. and men who care about women and care about men um 
Mm. But there, yeah, we still need to keep the the dialogue going, and just as men speaking pig-headedly about women needs to evolve, um, it's not useful to to shame all men and uh, say that they're all the same and that they're evil creatures who throw their power around and and leave a path of destruction wherever they go. So I, I, I totally agree. Like, sorry. Yeah, no, please answer. Yeah. So, like I said earlier, I really think that in general, humans are trying to do the best that they can. And I think that, like, I don't think that it's just like, here's a whole bunch of bad guys, right? Like there's, there's so many, there's so many great guys and there's so many people doing the best that they can. And it used to be, I think before me too, that we didn't know what the best that we could do was right because before that i think that it was easy to think okay she didn't say no that means this is fine but i think that um i think that what's really great with um with me too and with us talking more about consent is kind of just making sure that there's more awareness because i don't think that all of the things that happened to me were necessarily um deliberate right there, I think that there was some that was just like, if we would have had more understanding maybe as, as a culture, if we would have had Me Too before, before my time, um, that maybe things would have been better, that maybe things would have been safer. And I will say, um, my book is a difficult one for people to publish on account of it having, having such a difficult, difficult subject matter. But it has been men who have been the biggest champions of my book. And it was yeah it's men who made my book become something that was published and so i very much appreciate that i appreciate you guys having this conversation and i know it's difficult i know it's easy to feel um maybe judged or kind of like lumped like everyone's all kind of lumped together in the in the villain category um but i think that yeah i just think that there's so many great men doing the best that they can and if we can just improve what that best is a little bit that would be super as a father of, of older teenagers um, i have two girls and a boy I, I would love for your advice on how we can help them navigate these challenging waters as they head into college and, and in their 20s so that's that's a difficult question mm -hmm. um but i think that it's so important for for people and particularly women to be empowered um, and in control of their own bodies and what happens to them. And so it might not be the, it might not be the advice that a dad wants to hear. <laughs> um, right. Because there's so much, like there's so much temptation to be like, don't come around my daughter or I'll shoot you. Right. Yeah. There's, there's all of those kind of, <laughs> yeah. those, there's all of those kind of cultural things. Right. But I think that we need to, to stop, um, talking about girls that way and that they need to be protected in that way because they really should be um, empowered to take care of themselves and do what they want or not do what they don't want to do. And so I think the more that we tell them, these are your choices and you're allowed to make them, I think that the safer that they will be. I love that. Thank, thank you. I love that <laughs> empowerment instead of protecting, but empowering. Love it. Yeah. It comes mm. back to balancing that power dynamics. So I know we're, um, about to wrap up and I want to give you a, an opportunity to, to give a, a bit of a shout out to your book um, but before we do that I, and I hope this isn't too slippery of a slope but with John just mentioning his uh, his kids and and being a father and I know you had uh, 
it was difficult for you to become close and reconnect with your parents but i i believe that mm-hmm. you you've made an effort and and brought in that positivity that you have now into that relationship again if you could just touch on that yeah so through through my recovery um i was able to regain a lot of things that i used to have um so i have really good really good relationships with my parents now they're they're portrayed kind of critically in the book um but by the end everything everything shifts with them they started coming to therapy with me we started um being capable of listening to each other and talking to each other and so that's that's been absolutely incredible and i'm so grateful to them for for being open to this and for having and for having these kinds of conversations with me um but i want to say too like my life like i know that we talked about a lot of difficult kind of heavy things and and maybe it was a bummer of a conversation um but i want to say again like i have such an incredible life right now and i did not know that it was possible for me to be this happy and that it was possible for me to be well again and so i just want to um i just want to offer that kind of hope to anyone else who might be struggling so my book talks about my my particular path through recovery and i wrote it while i was getting better and i partly did that because i wasn't able to find other people's stories of how exactly did you get better and so i wrote it to kind of leave like my trail of breadcrumbs to be like well i did this and i did this and i did this and this is how it went and so it's my it's really my hope that in reading my book or in in hearing about my story that people will feel some hope and realize that yeah you you can get better even even if these terrible things have happened to you your your life can be amazing on the other side. Mm, absolutely. And you've called it wide open and what does that mean yeah. to you? <laughs> that is a question that sometimes it takes me a very long time to answer. <laughs> um so it's it's got multiple meanings. One of them is like how wide open how vulnerable i was to like to these bad things happening to me in the first place um but another one is about how i've just how i've just grown this enormous heart um that's gotten big enough to encompass me big enough to encompass all of my secrets and big enough to um big enough to be capable of sharing that and i'm really yeah i'm just really thrilled to have become such a such a wholehearted person Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Your story of recovery and transformation and the place that you're in now is incredibly inspiring. And yeah, I, I'm extremely grateful for the fact that you are using uh, this platform now to to share that hope and message with others and, and grateful as well that you came on today to share it with us. I'm, uh, where can people find your book and, and more information about you? So it is everywhere, <laughs> um, but you can find it at my website, which is dmditson.ca, but it's on Amazon and it's available through chapters and all the major booksellers. Yeah, let's keep spreading that gift. Um, let's use your message and um, make it known to as many people as we can. Yeah, th- thank you so much for, for coming on. Uh, it's, you know, you, you said it's a tough topic to to both talk about and, 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 you know, Andrew and I were, we did our best to host the conversation and and I hope it will (laughs) translate well. Um, I think my, one of my biggest takeaways from this conversation was just the need to talk about it and how it's so important Mm -hmm. not to bury anything and be open and, and, Mm -hmm. and not, 
and perhaps shame won't be a reality if we can talk about it um, mm-hmm. instead of you know as, as you said you did writing it down and then burning it up instead let's let's talk about it and I'm so glad you've done that with your book and I think the book mm-hmm. will be a lifeline for many thank you thank you both for your kind words and for hosting this I think it's a really a really commendable thing that you guys did in inviting me on and talking about these really really hard things it was and our pleasure I'm so grateful <laughs> thank you thank you Thanks a lot. Well, that's the episode. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. We appreciate your time and attention. If we can make one request, please subscribe. How do you do that, John? They push subscribe. That's all you got to do. We also got social media, guys. We got Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Please like us and follow us there. We also got a really fancy website. ObstacleCoursePodcast.com That is the one. It's where you'll find our show notes and lots of other goodies. And if you have somebody who'd be great for the podcast, please let us know. Send us a message on any of those networks and we'll bring them on. Mm -hmm, For sure. We're always looking for good people. Thanks for listening. Keep pushing through those obstacles.